listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So we've seen so far that the people of God have been taken into exile into Babylon against their will. They don't love this. There's King Nebuchadnezzar. And then we saw picking up in chapter two last week, we saw that King Neb has a dream and he goes to all the wise men, all of his sorcerers, all of his uh, diviners. And he says, can y'all please tell me the dream and then interpret the dream for me. And they give him what is uh, essentially a, a fortune cookie saying, ah, we don't really know except um, there aren't really any lottery ticket, uh, lottery numbers on the back of it. And so they're just like, yeah, we don't really. He says, this doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. And so I'm going to wipe out all of y'all, all of you wise men from the face of the earth. And that would include Daniel and his three friends that we see here. Most of us know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel goes to the king and says, King, give me just a few minutes, give me a couple of hours, maybe a day or two, and I'm going to tell you your dream. Just, just let me see if I can spare my life, my friends, and then those other magicians, those other sorcerers. Let's just see if we can figure this out. So that's where we get to today in verse number 17, chapter 2. Here's what I want us to see. Big picture, where are we going from this passage? We're going to see several other subpoints through here. But I want us to see big picture, similar to what we just saw here in this video, is that surrounding Daniel was the spirit of Babylon. Surrounding him was the spirit of Babylon, but filling Daniel was the spirit of God. Surrounding Daniel was the spirit of Babylon, but filling Daniel was the spirit of God. So we'll pick up in verse number 17. And we just read this. I'm not going to read the entire passage all the way through for us again. But notice in, verse numbers, in verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house, and he just told uh, Arioch, he said, hey, give me a little bit of time. Let me see what I can do. So he goes to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Remember, that's their Hebrew, their given name for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We already discussed that. Verse 18, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, the mystery of Neb's dream so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed. This is a life or death mission here with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, notice here that Daniel, he doesn't just say, hey, let me go to my prayer closet, or he doesn't try to figure out something else, some other way that he can be on par with these other wise men or magicians, but he goes to his posse, to his clan. He goes to his crew in the midst of crisis. For us, friends, this would be like him going to his life group or his DNA group and saying, guys, I've got this huge, we've got to figure this out or else we are all dead. And can I tell you something this morning, South Point? Don't wait until you are in the midst of crisis to find community. Because so many of us will be here when times get tough or I can't figure out how to parent my kid or someone is on the verge of death. Then it's like, oh, wait, you know what? I forgot. God's in heaven. Let me seek him. You know what? Then I'm going to show back up to church. And so many times we see this, people are, hey, man, I just, I haven't, I haven't really been in church, but now times are tough, and so I'm getting back into church as if it's like, okay, time to rub the, the church, the church genie in the bottle. Poof, here's God. Oh, how can I bless you? Oh, you're in trouble. How can I make your life better? Friend, don't neglect community until the moment of crisis. Can I also tell you this? All of us are going through different things in our lives. The reason community is so vital is not only for you, 
but it's for the sake of someone else. If you have the Spirit of God active and living, empowering you, you have been placed in community for the sake of someone else. And so someone else may need that shoulder to cry on. They may need those words of wisdom. They may need that expertise. They may need you to speak the word of God into their lives. Community is not all about you. It is not all for you. It's for us together as a body of believers. When one part of your body is injured, the rest of your body goes to compensate for that. And so many of us here this morning, maybe you're hurting. You're like, man, I need community. That's why we're here. Some of you are like, man, life is going so well, I don't really need community. You are wrong. You do. You do. And maybe you're not in crisis, but you need community because that's what the Spirit of God has called us into and commissioned us for. As we step into this, I almost forgot, Psalm chapter 119. We'll make this our prayer this morning. Uh, Repeat these words after me as I say these. Open my eyes that I might receive your wonderful word to me. Thank you. Uh, here's what we see right here in, this, in these first couple of verses. First, we don't pray more fervently and faithfully because honestly, church, if I got a raise of hands, it'd be, ah, yeah, that's me, because we don't feel the urgency. We don't pray more faithfully and fervently because we don't feel the urgency. Even during the confession time this morning, just a few moments ago, I'm confessing the fact that I don't really need a whole lot in my life. My life is mostly comfortable. Even when there are issues, there are normally ways that I can fix those things. Because we have, and some are like, well, you don't understand my life. Like, and I don't. We all have suffering in different ways. But can I tell you, most fixes can be found either on your phone, on Amazon, at Walmart, by asking someone, like, hey, can I, can I borrow? Most things are there. Because for many of us, our ultimate God and our ultimate pursuit is comfort. And so we have very little need for the presence of God. We have very little need for prayer because we often have very little urgency. But notice here, the first thing that Daniel and his friends did is they saw the power and the presence of God. And can I tell you this morning, we have, you have, friend, you have access to the power and to the presence of God. We call this the information age because we have access to all. You've been sitting at a table. I know I do this. We're like, man, who was that person? Or where was that place? Or what was that thing called? And it's like, why don't you plot your phone? You have the answer right there. Just Google it. You have it. But no, no, I'm going I'm to figure it out before you can Google it. You ever do that? I do that all the time. Greater than all the access to information or to finances or to resources or to opportunities that we have in this life, you have access to the power and to the presence of Jesus through his word, through the people of God, and through prayer. And that's really good news for us this morning. Don't neglect that. I think what's interesting here, we see this tension, uh, this, this back and forth, and we've already talked about this, about Daniel and his three friends, how they keep going back and forth between their names, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have this, this back and forth between Daniel and Belteshazzar. But notice what Daniel does here. He calls his friends by their Hebrew names. And I think this is important because it doesn't matter what the world calls you. It does not matter what the world calls you. What is most important is who has called you. And if you've been called out from the kingdom of darkness, 
by the Spirit of God that he has given you a new identity. He has given you a new name. And it is one of being child, of being son and daughter, one who is adopted. You are his. Don't lose sight of that here. They are going to their good and gracious father based on what he has done, based on their new given identity. Verse number 19. We'll make it through these verses, I promise. Those are just the first two, though. Verse number 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now, we were asking this question in my life group this past week. What's the difference between a dream and a vision? And the difference really between a dream and a vision, a dream happens when you are asleep. A vision scripturally happens when the person most of the time is when they are awake. That's really the, the difference here. So we see that back and forth. Dream is when you're asleep. Vision is when you are awake. Many times we see it in scripture, dreams and visions are how the spiritual world communicate with the physical world. This could still be true in our day in 2022, but we also can't say that every single dream or every single vision that we have is from God or from demons. It may just be the burrito that you had the night before. That may be it. So we can't say, oh, well, if I had this, then, uh, I mean, Preacher Powell, he said that every single dream and vision is, no, no, not every single one. I'm saying, but when the spiritual world wants to communicate with the physical world, oftentimes what they use are dreams and visions. Now, we have to compare those with Scripture. Here's the other thing that we see throughout here. Uh, just because something is narrative, so this is telling us the story of what happened. Just because something is narrative, even in the scripture, does not make it normative. Narrative does not equal normative. We see tons of narratives, tons of true stories throughout the scripture, and we don't say, well, if it happened to him, it's got to happen to me. Let's just consider for a moment Ananias and Sapphira. Remember them? They lied about how much money they had given to the church. Boom, dropped dead. So if you want to apply one thing as being normative, you got to apply that. Good luck. That one's on you, not on me. So I'm saying narrative is not normative, okay? So as we see Daniel here interpreting the dream, no, this is what was happening then. This is the specific, the application of what was happening then, not necessarily for our lives. But we saw Daniel was good at interpreting dreams and visions back in chapter 1 and verse number 17. And the author of Daniel dropped it in there just as a little nugget. And maybe it wasn't important then, but we find that it's important now. Daniel could interpret these visions. He could interpret these dreams. Notice also, Daniel asked for the same thing that the godless magicians and diviners and sorcerers, the same thing that they asked for. But Daniel actually received an answer to his request. And it's because of his relationship with God. This is what we call special revelation. It was revelation directly from God. If, if you notice there in the second half of verse number 19, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. After all this happened, Daniel is sitting here, a youth. He's a eunuch. He's a vegetarian. He's in exile. Everything has been taken away from him, and he is in the service of an evil, evil king. And what does he do? God, how could you? No. Daniel blesses the God of heaven. Here's the second thing that I want us to see this morning. You may not know what the future holds, but friend, you know who holds the future. In the midst of the valley, 
what's the peace? What's the source of life that you run to? God is in control. What do we see in Psalm 23 in verse number 4 in the KJV? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because what? Because you are with me. You have the presence of God. Even as children, we sing the song, you got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide. You know that song? How many times do we forget that? Friend, if he has the whole world in his hands, that means he has your world in his hands also. He has not forgotten you. He cannot forget you. You are his. You are his child. Look at verse number 21. He, we have this prayer. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the God, the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Isaiah chapter 40, this will be up on the screen, verses 22 through 24. It, it says this. And if, actually, if you go back at, in Isaiah, I don't have this on the screen. But uh, in verse number 12, he says this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Talking about God. He talks about all the oceans on the face of the earth. He measures them right here in the hollow of his hand. And then he says, he's marked off the heavens with a span. In other words, it's like this. This is what the heavens are like to God. He's measured them. How big are the heavens? We look up and we're like, yeah, we can't even see them all. He's like, eh, about that big. He measures them with a span. He enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. In other words, all of the earth is like the dust on a scale. He's like, there goes the earth. That's the God that we worship. And then we see this. this is, I think this is up on the screen. Verse 22. He says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, talking about God, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's how small we are in the sight of God, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He's just like, here's the heavens, done. And spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Daniel is reflecting on this truth knowing that God is in complete control if he gets the dream or if he doesn't. He can provide the answer to the dream and the interpretation to this king, knowing, man, this king is not the ultimate. I worship the king of kings. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, talking about the kings, the ruler of the earth, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. That's... When we think we're so powerful and so much, even the kings of the earth are like nothing to him. Yet we see here this contrast between the self-reliance of King Neb and the humility and the God-reliance of Daniel. He says, I'm going to go to him. Bless God. Bless his name. How often, friends, do we not see God as big enough for the problem that we have? When something big happens, I'll pray to God for that. When someone's in the hospital or on the verge of being in the hospital, when someone is near death, when I really need that new job, when I really need that raise, when I really need that, then I'll pray, then I'll see God. Friend, he is large enough to satisfy even when you are being tempted with something else, with a lesser God. He is large enough to satisfy you in every single moment. He is the Prince of Peace. Verse number 22, 
He continues, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. He may not give you the answer to every single one of life's questions. Hear me. He may not give you the the answer to every single one of life's questions, including things about your family or your job or sickness or health. But know this. You can move through this life with hope because of who he is because of his character and his nature. That's what allows you to move through life, not because of what he gives you, not the answers that he provides, but because of who he is. He is faithful. Verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So he, we already saw that he got the dream and the interpretation to this. Notice right there in the middle of that, of that verse, he says, have made known to me what we asked of you. This was a community project. This is a community prayer request. We were all asking you of this. But notice this also right there at the beginning, to you, O God of my fathers, the men who had gone before Daniel had left a legacy to him. Maybe he was speaking just in general terms about Moses or Abraham, but interpreters of this better linguist than I am, would say that he was speaking directly about those who came right before him, his father, his grandfather. Men, I'll speak to you for a moment. You are the most influential person in your family's life. You are the most influential person in your family's life. And this would go for both moms and dads, but especially to men. You will either worship the Lord of all creation or you will worship your job and your time and your comfort and your money and the game and your pleasure and your satisfaction. Those are the options. We see here in Daniel that these men had left a legacy that laid the groundwork for him to have faith in Yahweh, the one true God. Verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, I got it. You don't have to pull us limb from limb. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. The reason that Daniel can stand before this king is because he had knelt before the king of kings. What gave him power was not the fact that he had figured this out in his own mind, Not that he had taken and and spent time and interpreted the king's dream with these wise books of these. No, he went in and said, I'm going to first spend time in prayer. Prayer set him up for the rest of his day. It set him up for the rest of his week, for the rest of everything else that he had to do. Prayer was the driving force in Daniel's life. And his boldness came from prayer. He stands before the king. He says, I got it. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him thus, notice what Arioch says here. Notice his self-aggrandizing, his self-aggrandizement versus the humility of Daniel. So notice what Arioch says. Notice carefully. I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. I have found this. Did Arioch find this guy? No, Daniel was like, whoa, hey, 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 just give give me a minute. Verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, 
Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Notice here the humility of Daniel in these next two verses. Again, juxtaposed with the spirit of Babylon. We see here the the self-reliance of the king, the self-aggrandizement of Arioch. Notice the humility of Daniel. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. What you're asking for is impossible. Next word, but. Verse 28, but. It reminds me of Ephesians 2 and verse number 4. But God being rich in mercy. Here, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king. Not, hey, look what I found. It's the God in heaven who has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And next week we're going to look at the interpretation of the dream. Here's the dream. Here's what it means. But here he's setting it up. Verse 29, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries were made known to you what is to be. In other words, this dream is from God. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. At some point, all diviners, all scientists, all self-help guides are going to fail you. All the parenting books eventually are going to fail you. Oh, man, what all the blog posts, all of those things, they are going to fail you. Here's the fifth and final truth that I want us to walk away from is that God's power starts where yours ends. God's power starts where yours ends. Maybe you don't know what else to tell that kid who just won't listen to you. Maybe you've tried every, somebody, somebody said, <laughs> he's, he's been reading my mail, you know, or you've been reading mine, this is confession. Maybe you don't know what else you can do to beat that addiction. You've tried everything that you can try. Maybe you've tried your hardest, you've tried your darndest to wake up early, to spend time in the word, to spend time in prayer, but you just can't make yourself do it. Maybe you've sought everything that you can to fill that void and you have still been left lifeless. Maybe you've tried as hard as you can to evangelize those that you work with. You've tried everything that you can do, but there is a God in heaven. But there is a God in heaven. The power of God begins where your power ends. I want us to take that for just a moment, that, that past, that, those, those words right there in verse number 28. But there is a God in heaven. And here's what I want us to do. Because I don't want us just to hear, okay, now we understand Daniel chapter 2, 17 through 30 better. Cool narrative. He said it's not normative, so I don't even know what to do with this. All right. So here's what I want us to do, though, is take those words. When we understand that Daniel is here in the midst of exile, in the midst of Babylon, Here's the question I want you to answer. I'm going to give you like 45 to 60 seconds, something like that. It's going to be awkward. 
you think it's awkward for you, it's really awkward for me. Like, I'm just standing up here with nothing else to do, and the camera's just like, I don't know what to do besides look at you. You're like, I don't, there's nowhere else. Like, I don't know. But here's the question I want you to answer, and you can write this down in your notes, in your journal. You can type it in your phone. But that phrase right there, but there is a God in heaven. Here's the question. How would your life look different if you believed that at your core this week? But there is a God in heaven. How would your life look different if you believed that at your core this week? Maybe another way of asking that is, what if you actually had access to the power and to the presence of God? How would your life look different this coming week? But there is a God in heaven. Take 45 seconds or a minute. Was anybody counting? Because I forgot. We've already seen this. I'll say it again. Surrounding Daniel was the spirit of Babylon, but filling Daniel was the spirit of God. First John chapter four, I think it's in verse number four. John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is what? In the world. Greater is he who is in you. Friend, that's the power and the presence of Jesus. But here's, as we look at Daniel, here's how I want to apply this this morning. I'm going to begin. This is almost parts one and two of a, uh, of a sermon. So we'll start it this Sunday, and then I'll kind of uh, finish up with a few more particulars, a little more application on this even next week. But here's what Daniel had done. He had figured out not just his relationship with God. He had put his faith and trust in Yahweh. But he had also considered and figure out his relationship with the world. So that it was both and. He knew his relationship with God, and he knew what his relationship was with the world. For us here this morning, almost 3,000 years later, 2,500 years later, for us, in order for us to have influence in the world, here in this land and in the midst of the power of the spirit of Babylon, we must understand two things like Daniel. We must understand our relationship with God. And we must understand our relationship with the world. We must understand both of those. And so uh, we have at least four postures to the world. And here are the four postures. I'm going to go through these. And, um, and this is not meaning to, some of y'all are going to be like, ooh, I think he's talking about me. Maybe so. I don't have anybody in mind with these. Uh, one, of these, these one of these actually lays in a little bit more to probably more of our context. But I want you to notice the way that we often view the world. Because Daniel viewed the world as being on the mission of God. Whatever that looks like, 
in life or in death, but there is a God in heaven. And so I'm going to follow him. I'm going to obey him. So we often come to one of these four postures to the world. The first posture is, uh, is this. The first posture that we often have toward the world is that of separation. Separation. Probably in your mind's eye, you're thinking Mennonites or the Amish, or a lot of times really cults fall into this. All the folks in this world are bad. Let's stay away from the sinners lest we get any sin on us. That's the position, that's the thought of these. For many of us, consider this. You may be in this group if you lack meaningful relationships with non-believers. You may have separated yourself from the world. And if you tell your kids, hey, hey, let's, don't, don't get around those scary sinners. No, 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 those are bad folks. Let's see if we can avoid those people. Here's the problem. Consider the closing words of Jesus before he goes up into heaven. As you are going, go to seek the lost, go to make disciples, go preach to them. So that's the problem with separationists or separatists, as there was an entire group known. The second group that we have are those who assimilate. So the second posture that we often take toward the world is assimilation. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we said there are three primary groups of people in Babylon. We have one, the people of God. The second group that we have are the people of Babylon. The third group that we have are the people of God who are living like Babylonians. This would be this group. They would say, yes, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I have a faith in Jesus. But my values line up with the value system of the world. I would guess that many of us would often find ourselves there. But we, saw, we said this a couple of weeks ago also. In order to make a difference, you must be different. The third posture to, towards the world is that of altercation. That of altercation. Now, I actually think this is probably where most of us in the Bible Belt fall, is that of altercation. We see the lost as an enemy to be defeated rather than the lost as in need of the love of a gracious God. We see this a lot of times on Facebook. This is where we get into debates. Let me just see if I can convince them. Let me show them why they're so wrong. Is there anything necessarily evil about that? Not necessarily. But if our posture is always simply altercation, let's just keep things stirred up. Let me just prove how I'm right and you're wrong. When you watch CNN, okay? And I'll say Fox and MSNBC, all of those. When they have certain debates and they're like, uh, well, here's a preacher or here's a Christian. Let's hear from his perspective. It's always this person whose posture towards the world is altercation. And they're on there fired up just to fight. Let's just fight. Because Jesus said, you know, if you're not with me, you're against me. So yeah, I'm against everybody. This one's easy for us to fall into this whole us versus them. This good versus bad. That one's easy for us to fall into because that makes us good. Because they're bad. The problem is the gospel. The problem is that the gospel says that we are all bad. We're all sinners, and there is but one good, and his name was Jesus. South Point, listen to me this morning. Satan is our enemy, and we are all his victims. The lost are not your enemy. Satan is your enemy, and me and you and the lost, we are all his victims. The last posture toward the world is the one that I the one that I struggle to adopt, 
the one that I hope that we can adopt, the one that I think Daniel has here. And honestly, as we look forward to Jesus, I think this is the one that he has primarily. We just went through the book of Luke, spent 47 weeks there. Who does Jesus normally get mad at? It's not the, it's not the lost who are out here sinning, doing what sinners do. He often, always, in every single instance in the book of Luke, every single one, the one he gets fired up against are those, are the Pharisees, are the religious. Those who think they are in the right. That's who Jesus is angry at every single time. If someone's lost, living like lost, what does he do? Shows them compassion. He asks them questions. He heals. He is merciful to them. This last perspective is one of transformation. Now understand the exiles here, when they were living back in Jerusalem, if they saw a false god, like a a literal small idol, they were commanded in the Old Testament law to go and to break that idol down, to bash it. But that's not what they did in Babylon. Because idols were everywhere. They would have been all over the place. So how in the world are these exiles supposed to exist here in Babylon? Well, we already saw it. Back in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, and then continuing through the, through the chapter of Jeremiah 29, we saw it back in Jeremiah chapter 23. What does Jesus say do? Or what is, sorry, not Jesus. He's not around Jeremiah quite yet, not on this earth. I'm about to get myself in some theological. T- so what does, what does Jeremiah say do from the word of God? Everybody with me? Okay, we're back on. Okay, just forget what I just said. So what does the word of God say? Can we say that? The word of God say in Jeremiah chapter 29, he says, have a lot of sex and make a lot of babies. Pretty much the greatest church mission statement there could be. He says, go forward, and we've seen this same mission statement from Genesis. Go and fill the earth with worshipers, with image bearers of me. Then we see it in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Go tell other people about me. Even in Matthew 28, what do we see there? He says, as you are going in all of life, as you are finding your spouse, as you are having babies, train them up. The Shema, Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6. He says, go and build homes. Go work among the people. Go be there with them. You're not there to confront them. You're not there to bash their idols. You're there to show them a better love. You're there to show them a better hope. You're there to show them a better life. Point them to the one true God. As you are going, our posture toward the world should be that we have been transformed, not just on the outside, friend, but on the inside. On the inside. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Has your life been transformed from the inside? Daniel, he made relationships. He climbed the societal ladder. We're going to see next week, he's put in charge of a a lot of the nation. It's like, oh, well, uh, if if you're down on the bottom rung, you know, that's just uh, persecution. Daniel wasn't. Joseph wasn't. We see these guys in charge. But he climbed that social, that work ladder. He became a national leader by having a transformed perspective. So the question for us is how do we do that today? How do we do that even in 2022? I want to pick up there some next week. But here's the question that I want us to ask this morning. Or here's at least the the encouragement that I have for us. I think sometimes we think that uh, spirituality and practicality are sometimes at odds. But can I tell you this? As we talk about being transformed on the inside, 
spiritual and practical go hand in hand. If I have an issue at my home and I've got a leak somewhere in my house or I've got something clogged up with my, with my plumbing, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to call a plumber. You're going to call a plumber, right? But imagine for a moment, this is like the best time for good music to show up during a plumbing illustration. Thank you, Jason. We planned all week for this. JK, he's got a real job. You call a plumber. Imagine that. I, just, I can't even do it. Give me something bluesy. Um, the plumber shows up to your house. Let's say he shows up and all he pulls out is his plunger. And he walks into your house and he starts plunging all your toilets and he even plunges a sink or two. I don't know. He, he starts plunging. He's like, well, I can't fix it. You're like, bro, I just paid you $85 just to drive out here and then $60 for every half hour. And you tell me that your plunger's not working on it. You go try something else. Like, I've got a plunger. I can do that. Did you know I go to school? Yeah, I went to school. I was an apprentice for a couple of years. Now I own my own business. But, you know, if the plunger doesn't work, you know, like, ah, I don't know what to do at this point. Well, go, go look in your truck. Get some more tools. Get some more resources. Don't you, don't you know how to fix this? He said, yeah, I know how to fix it. But... The plunger's just not doing the trick. Like, at this point, you're frustrated. You're like, I could have fixed it with a plunger. At least, hopefully, all of us here have a plunger in our home. You may not have anything else as far as plumbing tools besides a plunger. You don't need anything else. You'll call the, plum the plumber. But can I tell you this? You would say, you may know all of these things, Mr. Plumber. That's a real company, I think. You may know all of these things up here, but unless you put these things into practice, Unless you go and utilize all these other tools and resources that you have, they're pretty much useless. Can I tell you this, friend? You may know that you should be spending time in God's Word. You may know spiritually that you should be running after the presence of Jesus in prayer and in meditating on the Scriptures. You may know that you should be memorizing the Scriptures. But you're just not doing it. You're like, yeah, but practically it doesn't work out. I've, I've got this plunger. Maybe this will be enough. Can I tell you, if you walk away from here and it's just like more head knowledge, if it's just more truth, if it's just more tools and resources that never get used, you're like, yeah, that's just practical stuff. Can I tell you, we must create space practically, practically in our lives to experience the very real spiritual, spiritual presence of Jesus. So I would plead with you, and I would encourage you this morning, carve out, create space to hear from God, to sit with him. You must do, it's not going to happen magically. It's not simply going to happen spiritually. It's only going to happen practically. Create space for that. Step into the power and the presence with the people of God, with the word of God. We are all being discipled in one of two ways. We're either being discipled in the spirit of Babylon or we're being discipled in the spirit of God. And can I tell you something this morning, friend? You're discipling those around you in the exact same way that you're being discipled. You are either discipling your neighbors and your kids and your grandkids and your spouse and your brother and your sister. You are either discipling them in the spirit of God. If you're like, ah, well, maybe it's magically going to happen a different. No, if you are not discipling them in the spirit of God, then you are by default 
discipling them in the spirit of Babylon. May we be a people, may we be a church who are stepping into being followers of Jesus in every area of our lives. But it's got to begin with us. Before we can say, okay, how do we flesh these things out like Daniel did? How can we enter into seeing the the culture like this? We must understand our relationship with God the Father first. That's my encouragement for us this week. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar, he saw this, this vision, this dream of things that were going to happen, and it freaked him out. And I would ask you this morning, have you come to peace with Jesus Christ, knowing that you are going to see him again, either when you die or when he comes back again in his return? You are going to see him. And you are either going to rejoice because you are his, or like King Neb, you are going to be freaked out in fear. And that response to him is dependent on how you respond, even today, while you still have breath. Are you going to reject him as the author and the finisher of your faith, as your only source of life and hope? Or are you going to accept that free gift of grace that he offers us in Jesus Christ? He's able to offer that to you this morning because Jesus lived the way that we were supposed to live. He died. He took the wrath of God, the penalty of sin and this earth on himself. And he rose three days later so he could invite us into a new family. Right now, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father in the flesh, practically, physically, making intercession for us. And if he is tugging on your heart this morning, I would plead with you to fall upon his mercy afresh. Call out to him, cry out to him, surrender to him. Because one day you're going to see Jesus Christ face to face and you're going to call him Lord. You're going to call him King. But how you respond while you still have breath determines on what happens after that. How you respond determines how you spend and where you will spend eternity. So respond in faith. We don't have hope in and of ourselves. We don't have anything to offer ourselves. We don't have anything to offer other people. That's why we partake in this meal that we call communion. We have to go to something else and physically, practically take a piece of bread and dip it in juice and say, I need something other than me to satisfy. I need the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus to satisfy. That is our hope. That's the hope for us this morning. That's the hope for our children, for our neighbors, for the lost around us. As we partake in this meal, this is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who are in good standing with the local church. May this be a reminder to us and for us to take to a lost and to a dying world. Friends, you're invited to join me for communion.